You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. And because He's risen, we can be born again to a living hope, as the Apostle Peter puts it. Greetings to all of you and welcome back. For most of you, we're pressing on today in our consideration of a subject I've begun to open up in this series on Christian parenting. It's the subject of a covenantal perspective on the task of Christian parenting. Now, a couple of episodes ago, I introduced this subject as I encouraged your parenting to be informed by the covenant love of God for your children. Then in the last episode, I gave a I guess it was a crash course on covenant theology and worked out some of the implications of that for parenting. So today, I am anticipating that there may be a few questions that have arisen in the minds of my hearers, particularly for those who are new to this thing called covenant theology. Uh, This could be among the members of Resurrection. Uh, It could also be uh, among our friends at large. I remember well, I might say here, uh, my own grappling for the first time with all the implications of this paradigm for parenting that I was learning, uh, a covenantal perspective on parenting. So today's podcast is particularly with listeners who are in that stage of their learning. I'm going to structure my time in this episode then around a handful of what I'm calling frequently asked questions regarding a covenantal perspective on parenting. So, that's what's ahead, if you choose to listen on. Here's how I'll put the first question that I'd like to respond to uh, in this episode. Here's question number one. Isn't it presumptuous to say that our children are born into a covenant relationship with God, since we don't know yet if they will personally believe on Jesus for salvation? I think that may well be the most pressing question that many Christians have when they're first exposed to covenant theology and the implications of it for Christian parenting. Uh, So these uh, brothers and sisters know from observation that uh, growing up in a Christian home is no automatic ticket to heaven. They recognize, in some cases, there can be seen outright rebellion against Christianity Uh, in kids that are in the church. And so uh, they're confused when Presbyterians, for example, speak of our children as born into a covenant relationship with God. It seems to some like an unfounded assumption, perhaps even a dangerous presumption. If you consider your children already to be in a relationship with God, then as parents you might not see any urgency to your task of leading your children to the Lord. And that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, This is the concern that I think many have had as they've begun to grapple uh, with this matter of covenant theology in our, uh, as an approach to parenting. Well, folks, there's a very worthy concern here and one that I want to take very seriously. Let me say as clearly as I can, I am in wholehearted agreement with the adage God has no grandkids. Uh, No one is made ready for the life to come apart from a personal 
saving relationship with Christ. Salvation is never the result of merely being born to people who are themselves saved. Every sinner, every sinner must put his or her own faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. And that response of faith is every faithful parent's prayer and passion for their children. I want to say those things clearly, and then I want uh, all to hear me carefully. When we Presbyterians say that our children are born into a covenant relationship with God, we are not denying any of what I just said for this simple reason. We know well that a covenant relationship is not necessarily a saving relationship. We're aware that not all who are in covenant with God will come to have a saving relationship with God. And that is something that we fully recognize as we speak of our children as covenant children. Now, this was absolutely key to my own journey towards this covenantal perspective on parenting. Uh, I became convinced our children's place with us in covenant with God is a great means to the end of their salvation, but that place with us in the covenant is not by itself a guarantee of their eventual salvation. Just remember from the last podcast, uh, I tried to emphasize there are two possible outcomes of being in covenant with God. Uh, All in covenant with God are loved by him and blessed by him in unique ways, but not all respond to God's covenant promises with faith. Not all respond to his covenant requirements with obedience. Not all of those in the covenant community, we could say it this way, love the one who first loved them. This is painfully clear. Uh, Throughout the preaching of the Old Testament prophets, among other parts of the Old Testament, I think it's painfully clear in the New Testament as well. I'm thinking just now particularly of the book of Hebrews, among other places. Uh, We, who are Calvinists, recognize that in all of this, God's sovereignty is at work. Now, he's the one who gives the gift of faith and the gift of repentance as he pleases within the covenant community and without. Uh, His purposes are mysterious, but it is clear he does not bring salvation to all covenant children. Nevertheless, it is, we are encouraged to see in God's word, it is God's ordinary, our Puritan fathers would probably say here, his favorite purpose to use the covenant relationship to win and woo our children, uh, if I may speak that way, into a saving relationship with himself. Psalm 103 is one of my favorites. Uh, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. It is God's ordinary. It is indeed his favorite purpose to use a covenant relationship to bring sinners into a saving relationship. And I think Jeremiah is speaking of this 
uh, in chapter 32, even as he looks ahead to the new covenant, he's speaking of this ordinary and even favorite purpose of God to use covenant to bring unto salvation. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. So, uh, my friends, what this leaves Christian parents with as they view their children as covenant children uh, is two things. Uh, Number one, the wonderful reality of God's covenant relationship with us and our children as objective fact. Our children are the most privileged children in the world. Covenant children are the most privileged children in the world, more than any uh, children of royalty the world around. God places them under our care as Christians because he loves them and desires their salvation. And we have the privilege of bringing our children up in all the comfort and the security of that love. I said at the outset of this, Uh, God's love for our children is not generic uh, like the love he has for all men. It is a special covenant love. So that's first. As we view our children as covenant children, we we, we see this reality of God's covenant relationship with us and our children as an objective fact. But here's the second thing uh, this perspective leaves us with. We have an urgent responsibility to invite our children, indeed to urge our children to love their covenant God in return. That response is a gift of God, to be sure, but he uses the means of faithful parenting to bring it about in our kids' hearts and in their lives. And without that response of loving God back, uh, the covenant relationship will be of no good to them, ultimately. In fact, uh, God's love, when it is un requited, as we say, is something held against sinners in the judgment day. And uh, in the words of uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, speaks of those who've profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. So I hope it is clear at this point uh, that a covenantal perspective on parenting, rightly understood, doesn't allow in the least for parental presumption about the salvation of our kids, much less does it promote it. In fact, I would submit it only heightens our parental responsibility or our sense thereof and the urgency of our task. I do think that sometimes when we're talking about paradigms for understanding the scripture's teaching, we can talk past each other as Christians as we wrestle with these paradigms. We take, for example, our own understanding of covenant. And if your understanding of covenant is that it is a synonym for salvation, a covenant relationship is a synonym for a saving relationship, then understandably, if you hear someone speaking of their children as from the moment of conception uh, in covenant with God, it would be easy to leap to the conclusion, oh, okay, so you're saying all your children are already saved from the moment of their conception, Well, I hope my listeners can see by now, that's not what we mean when we speak of covenant kids. I think we can uh, fairly say that we're using the word covenant in a bigger sense, one that allows 
for all that we see in the life of the church to be explained in terms of it. We are able to explain and uh, and account for children who are born into the covenant and grow up to be covenant keepers. We also can explain and account for children who are born into the covenant and grow up to be covenant breakers. So, I've taken a little time on that first question because I think it is so urgent for so many earnest Christian parents who are new to this paradigm that I'm outlining. Now, my second question is a follow-up to it, and it presses in a little bit more, trying to understand uh, the implications of this covenant theology for our parenting. Here's how I'll put question number two. Okay, someone says, so do we treat our covenant children as kids who are saved or kids who are unsaved? Which is it? (laughs) Now, let me say here too, uh, this is a good question because it's a question that's pointing to something that is indeed a clear biblical teaching. And that is that there are two kinds of human beings here on planet Earth, and we meet and interact with them every day. Uh, There are those who have eternal life and those who don't. Jesus spoke in those terms. There are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and there are those who are alive in Christ. The Apostle Paul would use terms like that, or uh, some of us uh, theologian uh, wannabes would say, Uh, There are those who are savingly united to Christ in his death and resurrection, and there are those who are not. Those are the two kinds of people here on planet Earth. And again, for those of us in the Reformed tradition, this goes back to God's sovereignty and indeed to his decrees. He has foreordained those who will, in time, be given the gift of eternal salvation and he, have, he fulfills that eternal degree by his Spirit who gives the gift of new life. We call that gift uh, regeneration. So, behind this question that's been posed is an ultimate reality, rightly understood. Uh, all mankind are in uh, one of two categories. Uh, this will manifest itself uh, in two human destinies, a heaven and hell. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. But as I respond to this question and this concern, um, having affirmed this, I would like to point out now that as all important as this division of mankind is into those who are saved and those who are unsaved, folks, it is also a division that is ultimately invisible to us. And I say that for this reason. We can't see with ultimate certainty into anyone else's heart. We can't verify infallibly that another human being has saving faith. We can, of course, assess the evidence in their life of a saving relationship with Christ, but we can't come to any kind of an inerrant conclusion. I think Jesus' teaching actually 
points out to us that there are going to be uh, some surprises uh, waiting for us in heaven. As we sometimes put it, there's going to be people there that we never imagined were going to be there. And there's going to be people who are not there that we had assumed would be among the most conspicuous. So folks, I'm just pointing out we should be careful treating anyone as if we know with certainty the eternal state of their souls. I trust that everyone listening will freely acknowledge we don't have that kind of insight. Deuteronomy 29, 29 comes again uh, to mind. Uh, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the reason I point this out is that, in fact, viewing children as either saved or unsaved is really not quite our perspective as parents, because that's not really the prerogative we have uh, in any decisive sense with anyone, because that's part of the secret things of God. Those who are in Christ savingly, are ultimately known, their number are known only to God. And as we say, there's going to be surprises for us on the last day. So instead of looking at our children or looking at anyone else in the world in terms as if we could divide everyone up into saved or unsaved, I want to submit that whether you've thought about it in these terms or not, you probably view people in your lives in terms, very appropriately, of another paradigm, another perspective. I think we view people in more objective terms as those who are part of either the church or the world. Those are more outward and objective categories, aren't they? Uh, Those are the things that become known and become uh, revealed to us by God in his providence. Even as we, uh, whether you've thought about it or not, uh, recognize people to be either part of God's church or part of the world, we see them in those objective terms, yet at the same time, we also have greater or lesser confidence uh, about their their actual experience of salvation in keeping with well, the evidence that we see in their lives. We realize ultimately know sorry, we realize that ultimately God alone knows such secret things, but we acquire our sense of confidence about uh, the actual experience of, of a saving relationship with Christ on the basis of uh, evidence. Let me unpack this uh, just a bit. Let me step back with you uh, for a moment. Think about something a little bit broader than our perspective of our kids as Christian parents. Uh, If you are part of a faithful Christian church, uh, you're surrounded by people who call themselves Christians, uh, who are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and who have fellowship with you in a local church. You, I trust, uh, in light of all those things that are objective and outward, I hope that you regard such people as your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I assume that you, and I hope you, 
regard them as Christians, as disciples of Christ, as part of the church, and not of the world. That is their objective status in your eyes. Uh, Some of us would say they're members of God's covenant community, which for many of us is another way of saying they're members of the church. Now, having said that, I also suspect that as you interact with people in your local church community and as you get to know them in all their uh, individuality, uh, you acquire inevitably and appropriately over time varying degrees of awareness of their uh, spiritual fruit, confidence in light of that fruit of their eternal state. Uh, you've got the pleasure of seeing in many of them obvious spiritual vitality, and I hope you find yourself delighted at what at times seems like absolutely crystal clear evidence of saving, gra- uh, saving grace in you, the lives of your brothers and sisters in the church. I suspect you've also had the pain of seeing in at least some of them uh, spiritual struggle, uh, apathy, Uh, even lifelessness or seemingly uh, lifelessness. And you have perhaps found yourself wondering just where that brother or sister is, as we say, spiritually. What am I pointing out here? Well, I'm trying to draw attention to the fact that there is an interplay in our uh, viewing and our treating our fellow members of Uh, local faithful Christian churches between their objective standing and the evidence of a more subjective spiritual state. In other words, you regard all these people as fellow Christians, but you see in varying degrees, uh, not only in them, but in yourself, uh, the evidences of spiritual vitality. I'm trying to make you conscious of the way you rightly treat all your fellow church members, folks, members of your local Christian community, because I want to say now, that is exactly the way Christian parents should treat their children. That's exactly the the paradigm for how we treat, view, and treat our children. So, parents, you should treat your children as members of the same flock, as led by the same shepherd as you. They are disciples of Christ. They're being taught by you, and they're being taught alongside of you how to follow Christ all their days. Another way to say that is they are Christians in the objective and the covenantal sense of that word, in this visible, tangible division of all mankind into church and the world, God has placed your children clearly and decidedly with you in the church, in the covenant community. They're born with you into covenant with God, and they're being brought by you to the Savior in your parenting. But while that is the objective basis on which we Uh, view and treat our children. Parents, I'll add to that. We're not to be content with these mere objective realities, however great a blessing they are. Uh, You're seeking that personal faith. You're seeking as a parent that spiritual vitality. 
those subjective signs of saving grace. That's what you're seeking. That's what you're praying for, and that's what you're parenting towards. You're praying for the reality in your children of what God alone ultimately can see and discern infallibly, but which you as parents are, as it turns out, in the best possible position, humanly speaking, to see evidence of. And this does mean that while our children standing in the covenant is a constant throughout our raising of them, uh, there will be seasons of more or less confidence in our hearts about where they are spiritually. And that will lend a particular urgency to our parenting. I say it this way to the kids of resurrection in the communicates class that I teach. Uh, I tell them, kids, it's one thing to be a Christian in name. It's another thing to be a Christian at heart. To be a Christian in name is a great blessing. It's to be counted among the covenant people of God. It's to be counted uh, as members of the church, as Christians. It's another thing to be a Christian at heart, which is to say counted by God himself who sees the heart as among his redeemed. Let me, uh, let me put this in, in practical terms for parents who have toddlers. Uh, if you're doing your job as Christian parents, uh, I think it will be very natural, moms and dads, uh, for your children to say to you very early, Mommy, I love Jesus too. <laughs> it is natural that they should grow up loving the one that their parents are clearly in love with, indeed professing to believe in him. Uh, what should we do with that? Well, I want to say it is right and good for us to take them at their word in this. Uh, never, parents, never adopt some kind of posture of skepticism towards those kinds of testimonies of our children, no matter how young they may be. No, treat them as the disciples of Christ that they are, and as it, they, as it is natural for them to profess to be. But even as you take them for their, at their word in this, uh, as parents, it's right for you to say, now, sweetie, um, this is what love for Jesus looks like. Uh, nothing could make your father or me happier than to hear what you just said. And here's what that looks like. Here's how you live out a life that loves Jesus. You hold them uh, to even those early and simplest uh, professions. Your prayers in all of that are for nothing less than for God to bring salvation to your children uh, through his, his first and best means of grace, which is the parenting uh, of Christians. So in this lengthy answer uh, to this very worthy question, perhaps you can see uh, that I'm really calling for a third perspective of parents towards their children. Not that their children are unsaved, until some moment that they can prove their salvation. Uh, not that their children are saved until they are proven unsaved. Here's how I want to put uh, the view uh, that we should have of our children. 
Uh, it's in the language of the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the members of the covenant community uh, in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 2, this is how he opens that important letter. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, what is so significant about those two expressions, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, is that the word for sanctified and the word saint are the same root word in the Greek. It's the word that's related to uh, our word holiness, holiness, being set apart, being sanctified. These are covenant concepts in the Bible. Those whom God has set apart from the world uh, to be in covenant with him are those who are holy or are sanctified. So that's what's so significant about what Paul does as he speaks to this church in Corinth, which, by the way, was, uh, shall we say, a hot mess of various sin problems. He opens that important letter by saying, in effect, I'm writing to you who are Christians, and I'm calling you to act like Christians. Uh, In an objective uh, sense, they are Christians. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are set apart. Uh, And yet, the apostle has, he's writing this letter with grave concerns about where some of them are spiritually. That's so clear in First and Second Corinthians. And so he says, right out of the gate, I'm writing to those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus. I'm writing to those who are called to be such, to be saints, to be set apart, to have the response inwardly and subjectively uh, to what God has done outwardly and objectively in their life. So, as Christian parents, we should treat our children as members of the household of God with us. We call them to live up to that status with their own personal faith and their own personal obedience. I remember uh, one Presbyterian from the UK uh, illustrating this paradigm and this dynamic uh, by quoting the Queen Mother. I don't know if this is an apocryphal quote or not, but uh, she was heard to uh, say to her young children back in the day, children... As we go out, royal children, royal manners. And you, of course, know what the Queen Mother was doing as she exhorted the children to behave. She was identifying who they were, your royal children. And then she was summoning them to act a certain way in keeping with who they were, uh, royal manners. So that is what our children are, brothers and sisters. Uh, They're royal children. They're children uh, born into covenant homes uh, with an unspeakable privilege of being in a covenant relationship with God from the very beginning. But it's for us to call them uh, to the kind of response to those privileges that will bring about in the life to come uh, eternal salvation. 
Well, let me take up a third question now. Once again, um, trying to push all the way up into the corners, as it were, this covenantal paradigm for parenting. And here's how I'll put uh, the third question for today. Uh, Do we pray then and minister to our children with a view to their being converted, or do we not? That's question number three. Do we pray and minister to our children with a view to their being converted, or not? I think this is also a sincere question. It would come from some uh, faithful parents who are being exposed to this covenantal paradigm for the first time. And I'm going to answer this question by saying something that might be a little surprising uh, to some of my listeners. Uh, As a pastor of an evangelical Christian church, I believe in the utter necessity of conversion. Having said that, as one who grew up in a Christian home, I'll also say that I never had a discernible conversion experience. And I'll just add, neither do many children who grow up in faithful Christian homes. So let me explain. Let me explain what I mean by that possibly surprising statement. I should define my terms as I uh, open that up a little bit further. When we talk about conversion, and Christians of all kinds of theological traditions uh, rightly speak of conversion, we're using a term that tries to capture the response of a sinner to the offer of salvation in the gospel. That response is Again, first, made possible by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And that response consists of turning in repentance from sin and turning uh, by faith to Christ. So that's actually the key concept behind this word conversion. It's turning, turning from something to something, from sin to Christ. And when we speak then of conversion, we're speaking of those two component elements, repentance for sin, faith in Christ. And theologians like to say those are the two sides of one coin. And conversion therefore marks the transition from the before to the after of salvation. Uh, Prior to conversion, a sinner is dead in trespasses and sin, and that is due to Adam's inherited sin. But after conversion, Uh, There's new life, new identity, and that is what makes me say I wholly embrace the utter necessity of conversion for every sinner to be saved. But I said that I had never had, and many covenant children never have a discernible conversion experience. Let me tell you what I mean by a conversion experience. So uh, many of uh, my listeners, uh, many Christians in general, have this testimony. They remember when they first heard the gospel. They remember when they first felt conviction of sin. They they remember perhaps even the day or the hour when they first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because that turning from sin to Christ was so, in their experience, dramatic. Perhaps it was attended with uh, any number of crisis um, uh, experiences. They can think back to the very experience in time when, as we sometimes say, they got saved. That was uh, discernible. 
It was perhaps even dramatic. By the way, um, there's any number of hymns that are written uh, to celebrate such a conversion experience. Now, that's the testimony of many Christians. But folks, uh, let me tell you something both wonderful and very important to understand. Here's the testimony that a lot of other Christians have by the grace of God. A lot of other Christians have the testimony that thanks to the ministry of faithful Christian parents, they heard the gospel from the very early days of their life. And thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, their testimony is they were responsive to that truth from their earliest days. Uh, They're currently living uh, in ways that are repentant of sin, and they are lovers of Christ and have and continue to put their faith in him alone for salvation. But here's the thing. They actually don't ever remember the day when they didn't experience all those things. I'll put it this way. As far as their experience goes, they've always been believers. Now, this is not to deny that those who have that kind of testimony had at some point in their life uh, a defining transition from death to life. But folks, that transition uh, apparently begins so early in the lives of some of God's people that its effects are not particularly discernible. They just know that they love Jesus more and more and that they've loved him for as long as they can remember. So I can put it to you this way. Uh, They have and have had for all of their remembered experience the two component parts of conversion. They have genuine repentance for sin and genuine faith in Christ, but they don't know when those experiences first began. Now, those are the two kinds of testimonies uh, that Christians have, and of course, there's all kinds of variations uh, in between the two of those, I suppose. Um, I do not say this to point out, or to suggest rather, that covenant kids never have, dramatic even, uh, conversion experiences. Um, I'm thankful to say that there is, in fact, that. It's painful on the one hand to see uh, covenant children settle into rebellion uh, in their teenage years, but it is wonderful uh, that even after years of rebellion against the faith, God does uh, get a hold of young men and young women in very dramatic ways through the means of grace and the preaching of the word in particular. And uh, they are dramatically uh, uh, converted to Christ, and they have uh, the experience of, of being able to point to the time. But folks, I think we could all agree, I hope, as parents, that we could all agree we'd actually rather have something else for our kids than that kind of experience. The the sowing of the wild oats and then being jerked back by grace uh, into the arms of Christ by God and his providence uh, through dramatic conversion. What would be better than that? What would we rather have for our children? I think we'd all rather have the blessing of growing up lovers of Christ from the very beginning. I consulted uh, one of my favorite 
systematic theologies uh, just in uh, think about this issue of conversion. Uh, Louis Burkhoff is a name known to many in uh, Resurrections uh, tradition of Presbyterianism. Uh, and this is what he writes about conversion in his uh, systematic theology. He says, conversion may be a sharply marked crisis in the life of the individual, but may also come in the form of a gradual process. And then a little later, he goes on to say, crisis conversions are most frequent in days of religious declension. That's an old-fashioned way of describing uh, a time of spiritual decline in a society, uh, the opposite of revival. Crisis conversions are most frequent in days of religious declension and in the lives of those who have not enjoyed the privileges of a real religious education. He's talking about a Christian upbringing. And who have wandered far from the path of truth or righteousness and of holiness. Uh, Burkhoff is pointing out that we rightly give praise to God for crisis conversions, even when crisis conversions come uh, to covenant children. We praise God for that. But what we would far rather have is children who never wander from the path of truth or righteousness. That is to say, those in whom conversion has been a process that uh, even began very early uh, in their lives. I'll just say here, by way of my own testimony, I recall realizing at some point, I'm sure it was in uh, my high school years, maybe even earlier, uh, I remember realizing that uh, I did not have a very exciting Christian testimony at least by uh, conventional standards. I had a boring testimony. Many people, I realized, who were asked to give their Christian testimony would speak of, well, being saved from addictions or crime or even prison. My testimony was, well, um, God seems to have given me a heart for him before I even knew what a heart was as a very little boy. Now, folks, I have come to be profoundly thankful for such a, quote, boring testimony. I am profoundly thankful, and many with more dramatic testimonies have had their part in assuring me and people in my circumstances of how much better that testimony is. Folks, that's the kind of testimony uh, every Christian parent should want for their children. Here's where I want to add something uh, by way of caution uh, to my fellow parents. Parents, do not hold over your kids uh, an artificial standard for a conversion experience, even if it's the kind of experience you yourself have had. Do not hold over them. Do not hold them to an artificial standard for what a conversion experience must look like. For this reason, if those children of yours have, in fact, by God's grace, shown sincere faith in Christ from their earliest days. Well, folks, can you see how this will become a way not of leading them to faith, but leading them to doubt, unnecessary doubt about the work of God in their hearts? Because simply because 
It doesn't meet an arbitrary or, or even an unfair standard that someone has set. I want to say that at its worst, holding covenant children to some uh, dramatic crisis conversion experience can uh, be a way of doing what Paul forbids in Ephesians 6, provoking our children to wrath. Even if they're too young to know that's what's happening to them. It could also, at worst, be something that Jesus warns against, causing a little one who believes to sin. So, brothers and sisters, here's the issue, and it's not just an issue for your children, it's an issue for you in your own uh, assessment of yourself before the Lord. It's not the experience you've had in the past which is ultimate. It really is whether you see in your life now the saving work of the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way, true brokenness for sin, true clinging to Christ for salvation day by day. That's the experiential Christianity that's the utter necessity for ourselves and is the utter necessity for our children and what we want to see in them. We're not, from a covenantal perspective on parenting, we're not so much concerned about some turning point experience in our children's lives. What we are wholly concerned about is this ongoing, growing experience of God's grace for our children and the evidence of it uh, in their lives. I'll put it this way. We want our children, in the truest sense of the expression, to grow up Christian, to be repentant and believing sinners from the days they first say their prayers. And indeed, we actually pray, we should pray, that the Holy Spirit would begin his saving renewal of their hearts from the very first time we know that they exist uh, in the womb of their mothers. We have uh, biblical examples, to be sure, of those who had the uh, saving experience in the womb, thinking of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, or John the Baptist in the New Testament. And it is my suspicion, though I have no zeal to try to prove it, uh, that God is pleased to do this quite a bit, uh, to answer our prayers and to uh, begin uh, his saving work in the lives of our children, uh, even in the days before they're born. We certainly uh, can pray that he would uh, and seek that blessing. Well, I have one more question among these FAQs on a covenantal perspective on parenting. And it's this question. I'll put it this way. Are you saying then that this covenantal perspective on parenting is the only faithful way to parent? Now, I, um, I don't actually know if this question qualifies as a frequently asked question, uh, but I'm posing it to myself in order to give me an opportunity in this podcast to say a couple of things about the paradigm that I've been outlining and its importance. Uh, here's the first. I, on the one hand, brothers and sisters, I think it's important for me to say that all Christian parents are faithful parents if they have in their sights and uh, in their efforts two fundamental objectives. What are the two fundamental objectives that I think all Christian parents can agree on? 
What is their job as parents? I think all of us, no matter what paradigms uh, we use for our parenting, would agree it's to lead our children to Christ as their Savior and to equip our children to serve Christ as their Lord. That's the fundamental objective of every Christian parent. I trust there's no one uh, listening who is a Christian and a parent who would uh, deny that. So I, I want to point out that for all our all the differences that that are uh, uh, in the larger church about well covenant theology and whether it's a proper paradigm for parenting, I think we can agree uh, as Christian parents on those two objectives. Um, I grew up in a church where uh, this covenantal perspective that I've been unpacking was missing. But I want to say that I remember, uh, as I think back to the years uh, of being a part of that church with great profit to my own soul, I remember how profoundly committed to these two Christian parent objectives uh, the men and women of that church were. I saw God bless in great measure the work of their parenting uh, because they had those two fundamental objectives um, near at heart. And in fact, I'll just say I would rather see earnest and diligent and prayerful Christian parents without a covenantal perspective than I would see negligent and irresponsible Christian parents who happen to have uh, a covenantal perspective of, of a kind. Uh, having a covenantal perspective on parenting is of no value all by itself. So no, first way to answer my question, no. What I've been presenting here is not the only faithful way to parent, but on the other hand, I want to say that I am utterly convinced that a covenantal perspective and approach to parenting is the most faithful way to parent. I'm unapologetic, and that's why I am spending so much time on this particular subject. I believe it's the most biblical approach to parenting. I hope that's obvious by now. And because of that, I think it's the most faithful way to parent. And because it's the most faithful way to parent, I also believe it's the most successful way to parent. That is to say, we will accomplish best as parents those two objectives that all parents embrace when we do it with the covenantal perspective I've sought to outline. When we lead our children to Christ as their Savior and equip our children to serve Christ as their Lord uh, from within a context of covenant. I'll just say as I wrap up here, I have found it immensely encouraging and instructive uh, to recognize that the way God speaks to us and deals with us in his word as Christians is the way we are to speak and deal with our children And this perspective that I'm advocating for, a covenantal perspective on parenting, puts the language of the whole Bible in the hands of parents uh, as they teach and exhort their children to love Christ. Uh, The Bible's written to the covenant community. It's written to those who are in covenant with God. Old covenant, new covenant. The Bible's written to the covenant community. And it's written to, uh, by God, to a people loved by him and called to respond to him in that love. That's the way the Bible comes to us. 
And when we take our cue from the Bible in dealing with our children as parents, folks, I hope you can see how affirming that is to our children and also how potentially demanding it is of our children. It's both things. I see this throughout the pages of Scripture as God deals with us, and I see this in our calling as parents. We are affirming of our children standing before God as those loved by Him in His covenant. What a, what a wonderfully affirming way uh, for children to grow up, to, to grow up knowing that God loves them with a special covenant love and that they're part of His household here on earth in covenant with Him. But at the same time, there's a great deal in the Bible that's demanding of us in our response to God's love, and that is true also of our parenting. We have a lot to call our children to be and to do in response to the love of God for them. That's the way our Father speaks to us in His Word. That's the way we as fathers should speak to our children in imitation of Him. So, I commend to all my listeners a covenant perspective on Christian parenting. And indeed, everything else I have to say on the subject of parenting will be through that biblical lens. I do believe, as I said once before, that the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition has something to offer um, our brothers and sisters in the larger church in this category I've opened up of covenantal parenting. Well, uh, these are deep waters, but I hope you'll agree they're well worth our taking a dip in in just a few podcasts. Well, that will be sufficient for one day. I'm thankful for those who have made it all the way through to this point in what I consider to be a very important uh, place in this series on Christian parenting, but we will press on uh, as we pick up next time. Thanks for joining me and the Lord keep you in His grace. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.